Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Half Hours with Modern Scientists written by T. H. Huxley. Prepare for a journey through science and physics, as this lovely reading helps you drift off into dream time. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly honoured that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. Special thank you to all listeners who have contacted me with lovely messages during the week. A massive thank you goes to Kelsey Brooke Nichols for becoming a $5 Patreon. Your monthly contribution is the greatest compliment and helps me bring out more episodes. Thank you also to iTunes listener Soccer Girl TK for your lovely review. I'm so glad the podcast helps you drift off easily. If you are a regular listener of the show and would like to say thank you, a great way to support the show is to become a Patreon or sponsor at boytosleep.com. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. 
If you would like, you can also say hello at boyeatersleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyeatersleep. You can also find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Introduction to the new edition of Half Hours with Modern Scientists. The title of this series of essays, Half Hours with Modern Scientists, suggests a variety of thoughts some of which may not be inappropriate for a brief introduction to the new edition. Scientist is a modern appellation which has been specially selected to designate a devotee to one or more branches of physical science. Strictly interpreted, it might properly be applied to the student of any department of knowledge when prosecuted in a scientific method, but for convenience it is limited to the student of some branch of physics. It is not thereby conceded that nature, i.e. physical or material nature, is any more legitimately or exclusively the field for science inquiries than spirit or that whether the objects of science are material or spiritual, the assumptions are processes of science themselves, should not be subjected to scientific analysis and justification. There are so-called philosophers who adopt both these conclusions. There are those who reason and dogmatise as though nature were synonymous with matter, or as though spirit, if there be such an essence, must be conceived and explained after the principles and analogies of matter. Others assume that a science of scientific method can be nothing better than the mist or moonshine, which they vilify by the name of metaphysics. But unfortunately for such opinions, the fact is constantly forced upon the attention of scientists of every description, and that the agent by which they examine matter is more than matter, and that this agent, whatever be its substance, asserts its prerogatives to determine the conceptions which the scientist forms of matter, as well as to the methods by which he investigates material properties. Even the positive philosopher, who not only denounces metaphysics as illegitimate, but also contends that the metaphysical era of human inquiry has, in the development of scientific progress, been outgrown like the measles, which is experienced but once in a lifetime finds when his positive theory is brought to the test that positivism itself, in its very problem and its solutions, is but the last adopted metaphysical theory of science. We also notice that it is very difficult, if not impossible, 
for the inquisitive scientist to limit himself strictly to the object matter of his own chosen fields, and not to inquire more or less earnestly, not infrequently to dogmatize more or less positively, respecting the results of other sciences and even respecting the foundations and processes of scientific inquiry itself. Thus, Mr. Huxley, in the first essay of this series on the physical basis of life, leaves the discussion of his appropriate theme in order to deliver sundry very positive and pronounced assertions respecting the limits of philosophical inquiry and quotes with manifest satisfaction a dictum of David Hume that is sufficiently dogmatic and positive as to what these limits are. In more than one of his lay sermons, he rushes headlong into the most pronounced assertions in respect to the nature of matter and of spirit. The eloquent Tyndall, in number five, expounds at length the methods and tendencies of physical investigation and discourses eloquently, if occasionally somewhat poetically, of the scientific use of the imagination. But Messrs. Huxley and Tyndall are eminent examples of scientists who are severely and successfully devoted, respectfully, to physiology and the higher physics. No one will contend that they have not faithfully cultivated their appropriate fields of inquiry. The fact that neither can be content to confine himself within his special field forcibly illustrates the tendency of every modern science to concern itself with its relations to its neighbours and the unresistible necessity which forces the most rigid physicist to become a metaphysician in spite of himself. So much for the appellation, scientists. Half hours suggests the very natural inquiry. What can a scientist communicate in half an hour, especially to a reader who may be ignorant of the elements of the science which he would expound? Does not the phrase half hours with modern scientists satisfy itself and suggest the folly of any attempt to treat of science with effect in a series of essays? In reply, we would ask the attention of the reader to the following considerations. The tendency is universal among the scientific men of all nations to present the principles of science in such brief summaries or statements as may bring them within the reach of common readers. The tendency indicates that there is a large body of readers who are so far instructed in the elements of science as to be able to understand these summaries. In England, Germany, France and this country, such brief essays are abundance. 
either in the form of contributions to the popular and scientific journals, or in that of popular lectures, or in that of brief manuals, or of monographs on separate topics, especially such topics as are novel or are interesting to the public for their theoretic brilliancy or their applications to industry and art. These essays need not be, and they are not always superficial, because they are brief. They often are the most profound on accounts of their consciousness, as when they contain a condensed summary of the main principles of the art or science in question, or a brief history of the successive experiments which have issued in some brilliant discovery. These essays are very generally read, even though they are both concise and profound. But they could not be read even though they were less profound than they are, were there not provided a numerous company of readers who are sufficiently instructed in science to appreciate them. That such a body of readers exists in the countries referred to is easily explained by the existence of public schools and schools of science and technology, and by the enormous extension of the knowledge of machinery, engineering, mining, dyeing, etc., etc., all of which imply a more or less distinct recognition of scientific principles and stimulate the curiosity in regard to scientific truth. Popular lectures also, illustrated by experiments, have been repeated before thousands of excited listeners, and the eager and inventive minds of multitudes of ingenious youths have been trained by this distribution of science to the capacity to comprehend the compact and pointed scientific essay, even though it taxes the attention and suspends the breath for half an hour by its closeness and severity. The fact is also worthy of notice that many of the ablest scientists of our times have made a special study of the art of expounding and presenting scientific truth. Some of them have schooled themselves to the lucid and orderly method by which a science seems to spring into being a second time under the creative hand of its skillful expositor. Others have made a special study of philosophic diction Others have learned how to adorn scientific truth with the embellishments of an affluent imagination. Some of the ablest writers of our time are found among the devotees of physical science. That a few scientific writers and lecturers may have exemplified some of the most offensive features of the demagogue, and the sophist cannot be denied. But we may not forget that many have attained to the consummate skill of the accomplished essayist and impressive and eloquent orator. 
One advantage cannot be denied of this now popular and established method of setting forth scientific truth, that it prescribes a convenient method of bringing into contrast the arguments for and against any disputed position in science. If materialism can furnish its ready advocate with a convenient vehicle for its ready diffusion, the antagonist theory can avail itself of a similar vehicle for the communication of the decisive and pungent reply. The one is certain to call forth the other, and if the two are present side by side in the same series, so much better it is for the truth and so much the worse for the error. The teacher before his class, the lecturer in the presence of his audience, has the argument usually to himself. He allows few questionings and admits no reply. An erroneous theory may entrench itself within a folio against arguments which would annihilate its positions if these were condensed into a tract. This consideration should dispel all the alarm that is felt by the defenders of religion in view of the general diffusion of popular scientific treatises. The brief statement of a false or groundless scientific theory, even by its defender, is often its most effectual refutation. A magnificently imposing argument often shrinks into insignificance when its advocate is forced to state its substance in a compact and close-jointed outline. The articulations are seen to be defective, the joints do not fit one another, the coherence is conspicuously wanting. Let then error do its most utmost in the field of science, its deficient data and its illogical processes are certain to be exposed, sometimes even by its own advocates. If this does not happen, the defender of that scientific truth which seems to be essential to the teachings and faiths of religion must scrutinize its reasonings by the rules and methods of scientific inquiry. If science seems to be hostile to religion, this very seeming should arouse the defender of theism and Christianity to examine into the grounds both by the light and methods which are appropriate to science itself. The more brief and compact and popular is the argument which he is to refute, the more feasible is the task of exposure and reply. Only let this be a cardinal maxim with the defender of the truth, that whatever is scientifically defended and maintained must be scientifically refuted and overthrown. The great master of our faith never uttered a more comprehensive or a grander maxim than the memorable words, To this end was I born, 
and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. It would be easy to show that the belief in moral and religious truth and the freedom in searching for and defending it, which was inspired by these words, have been most efficient in training the human mind to that faith. In the results of scientific investigation, which characterise the modern scientist. That Christian believer must have a very imperfect view of the spirit of his own faith, or a very narrow conception of the evidences and the effect of its teachings, who imagines that the freest spirit of scientific inquiry, or the most penetrating insight into the secrets of matter, or of spirit can have any other consequence than to strengthen and brighten the evidence for Christian truth. The five lectures embodied in this first series of half-hours with modern scientists were first published at numbers one to four of the university scientific series. In this series, the publishers have aimed to give the public in a cheap pamphlet form the advanced thought in the scientific world. The intrinsic value of these lectures has created a very general desire to have them put in a permanent form. They therefore have brought them out in this style. Each five succeeding numbers of this celebrated series will be printed and bound in uniform style with this volume and be designated as second series, third series, and so on. Henceforth, it will be the design of the publishers to give preference to those lectures and essays of American scientists, which contain original research and discovery, rather than to reprinting from European sources. The following remarkable discourse was originally delivered in Edinburgh, November 18th, 1868, as the first of a series of Sunday evening addresses upon non-religious topics instituted by the Reverend J. Cranbrook. It was subsequently published in London as the leading article in the Fortnightly Review for February 1869 and attracted so much attention that five editions of that number of the magazine have already been issued. It is now reprinted in this country in permanent form for the first time and will doubtless prove of great interest to the American readers. The author is Thomas Henry Huxley of London, Professor of Natural History in the Royal School of Mines and of Comparative Anatomy and Physiology in the Royal College of Surgeons. He is also President of the Geological Society of London. Although comparatively a young man, his numerous and valuable contributions to natural science entitle him to be considered one of the first of living naturalists 
especially in the departments of zoology and paleontology, to which he has mainly devoted himself. He is undoubtedly the ablest English advocate of Darwin's theory of the origin of species, particularly with reference to its application to the human race, which he believes to be nearly related to the higher apes. It is indeed through his discussion of this question that he is, perhaps, best known to the general public as his late work entitled Man's Place in Nature and other writings on similar topics have been very widely read in this country and in Europe. In the present lecture, Professor Huxley discusses a kindred subject of no less interest and importance and should have an equally candid hearing. In order to make the title of this discourse generally intelligible, I have translated the term protoplasm, which is the scientific name of the substance of which I am about to speak, and by the words, the physical basis of life. I suppose that, to many, the idea that there is such a thing as a physical basis, or matter, of life may be novel, so widely spread is the conception of life as a something which works through matter, but is independent of it, and even those who are aware that matter and life are inseparably connected may not be prepared for the conclusion plainly suggested by the phrase the physical basis or matter of life that there is some one kind of matter which is common to all living beings and that their endless diversities are bound together by a physical as well as an ideal unity. In fact, when first apprehended, such a doctrine as this appears almost shocking to common sense. What, truly, can seem to be more obviously different from one another in faculty, in form, and in substance, than the various kinds of living beings. What community of faculty can there be between the brightly coloured lichen, which so nearly resembles a mere mineral incrustation of the bare rock on which it grows, and the painter, to whom it is instinct with beauty, or the botanist whom it feeds with knowledge. Again, think of the microscopic fungus, a mere infinitesimal ovoid particle, which finds space and duration enough to multiply into countless millions in the body of a living fly, and then of the wealth of foliage, the luxuriance of flower and fruit, which lies between this bold sketch of a planet and the giant pine of California, towering to the dimensions of a cathedral spire, or the Indian fig, which covers acres with its profound shadow and endures while nations and empires come and go around its vast circumference, or turning to the other half of the world of life. 
picture to yourselves the great finna whale, hugest of beasts that live or have lived, disporting his 80 or 90 feet of bone, muscle and blubber, with easy roll among waves in which the stoutest ship that ever left dockyard would founder hopelessly and contrast him with the invisible animalcules, mere gelatinous specks, multitudes of which could, in fact, dance upon the point of a needle with the same ease as the angles of the schoolman could, in imagination. With these images before your minds, you may well ask the community of form or structure is there between the animalcule and the whale, or between the fungus and the fig tree? Finally, if we regard substance or material composition, what hidden bonds can connect the flower which a girl wears in her hair and the blood which courses through her youthful veins? Or what is there in common between the dense and resisting mass of the oak, or the strong fabric of the tortoise, and those broad discs of glassy jelly, which may be seen pulsating through the waters of a calm sea, but which drain away to mere films in the hand, which raises them out of their element. Such objections as these must, I think, arise in the mind of every one who ponders, for the first time, upon the conception of a single physical basis of life, underlying all the diversities of vital existence. But I propose to demonstrate to you that, notwithstanding, these apparent difficulties, a threefold unity, namely a unity of power or faculty, a unity of form, and a unity of substantial composition, does pervade the whole living world. No very abstruse argumentation is needed, in the first place, to prove that the powers or faculties of all kinds of living matter, diverse as they may be in degree, are substantially similar in kind. Goethe has condensed a survey of all the powers of mankind into the well-known epigram. In physiological language, this means that all the multifarious and complicated activities of man are comprehensible under three categories. Either they are immediately directed towards the maintenance and development of the body, or they affect transitory changes in the relative positions of parts of the body, or they tend towards the continuance of the species. Even those manifestations of intellect, of feeling, and of will, which we rightly name the higher faculties, are not excluded from this classification, inasmuch as to every one but the subject of them, they are known only as transitory changes in the relative positions of parts of the body. Speech, gesture, 
and every other form of human action are, in the long run, resolvable into muscular contraction, and muscular contraction is but a transitory change in the relative positions of the parts of the muscle, but the scheme which is large enough to embrace the activities of the highest form of life covers all those of the lower creatures. The lowest plant or animalcule feeds, grows and reproduces its kind. In addition, all animals manifest those transitory changes of form which we class under irritability or contractility. And it is more than probable that when the vegetable world is thoroughly explored, we shall find all plants in possession of the same powers at one time or another of their existence. I am now alluding to such phenomena, at once rare and conspicuous as those exhibited by the leaflets of the sensitive plant or the stamens of the barberry, but to much more widely spread and, at the same time, more subtle and hidden manifestations of vegetable contractility. You are doubtless aware that the common nettle owes its stinging property to the innumerable stiff and needle-like, though exquisitely delicate, hairs which cover its surface. Each stinging needle tapers from a broad base to a slender summit, which though rounded at the end, is of such microscopic fineness that it readily penetrates and breaks off in the skin. The whole hair consists of a very delicate outer case of wood, closely applied to the inner surface of which is a layer of semi-fluid matter, full of innumerable granules of extreme minuteness, this semi-fluid lining is protoplasm, which thus constitutes a kind of bag full of a limpid liquid and roughly corresponding in form with the interior of the hair which it fills. When viewed with a sufficiently high magnifying power, the protoplasmic layer of the nettle hair is seen to be in a condition of uneasing activity. Local contractions of the whole thickness of its substance pass slowly and gradually from point to point and give rise to the appearance of progressive waves, just as the bending of successive stalks of corn by a breeze produces the apparent billows of the cornfields. But in addition to these movements, and independently of them, the granules are driven, in relatively rapid streams, through channels in the protoplasm, which seem to have a considerable amount of persistence. Most commonly, the currents in adjacent parts of the protoplasm take similar directions, and thus there is a general stem up one side of the hair and down the other, but this does not prevent the existence of partial currents which take different routes, 
and sometimes trains of granules may be seen coursing swiftly in opposite directions within a twenty thousandth of an inch of one another while occasionally opposite streams come into direct collision and after a longer or shorter struggle one predominates. The cause of these currents seems to lie in contractions of the protoplasm which bounds the channels in which they flow but which are so minute that the best microscopes show only their effects and not themselves. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about protoplasms and flowers and all of these amazing processes. More importantly, I hope that you're feeling a little drowsy and tired. If you're not quite asleep yet, feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.